Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Kelly Odenweller. She's a professor of psychology and communication at Iowa State University. Like us, she's a post-traumatic parent. Dr. Odenweller studies how people communicate in families and across groups. She studies how changes in communication can change social norms. Check out her research on mom shaming on the internet. It will blow your mind. For a link to my blog post about Dr. Adenweller's research on mom shaming, see the show notes. Dr. Adenweller, it is a privilege to have you here on the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Welcome. So my name is Dr. Kelly Odenweller, and I am an assistant teaching professor at Iowa State University. And I do research on communication within the family and also so about the family, so how people inside their family talk to each other and what are the you know, best, most effective ways to do that to socialize children. But I also am very interested in the way that society talks about families and particularly the people in the family. So the roles that we hold in the family, like how society talks about moms and, and what moms should and shouldn't be doing. And, and then the, since they're women, how society talks about women and how that also affects how moms perform their roles. Right. That's super interesting. And the way we connected is actually, I read a study you did on mom shaming online and I thought it was such an innovative study because of the way you designed it. And also because what you found out and I thought, wow, we have to talk. I need to hear more about this because (laughs) this is what happens to the post-traumatic parenting community. I have some hypotheses that are not like, research-based about why I think mom shaming happens um, online and, you know, everything that we do. But I also really want to hear more. So my first question about this is, why do you think mom shaming happens? Like what, what happened to the internet that made it almost (laughs) become a toxic place for moms? Yeah. Well, unfortunately it's not just on the internet. So it is also shaming happens in person too. And I think that from, from what I've researched and what I've read, I, I think the, it comes down to thinking that we're in different groups, that we're different from each other. And that can be from a variety of different identities that we have or characteristics that we have, values and beliefs that we have. And unfortunately, at any given moment, depending on you know what online forum we're in or what social media platform we're on or just in what social setting we're in, those differences can be vast. We can think that that people, just based on their political views, that we're different from them. Um, their racial identities, we're different from them. Or when we're talking about moms, it does tend to focus on work. So do we sp- spend all of our time exclusively devoted to our home and our kids as moms? Or are we the kind of mom that kind of splits our time between work and home? And those differences tend to divide us right out the gate that, you know, we have to be really mindful and conscious not to let those differences and then those stereotypes that we have about those differences seep into the way that we're thinking about those people. And 
as soon as we, you know, if we go into, let's say our social media and we start having a conversation with a mom that, you know, is different from us, maybe we're a working mom and they're a stay-at-home mom, immediately the fact that we are thinking about each other in those different terms, that creates these divisive conversations. And there's a whole lot of other things that can lead to the shaming. Like a lot of it has to do with the way that we as moms and we as women think about ourselves. So we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect, to be doing momming, mothering correctly. Society puts a lot of pressure on what good moms should be doing. And we internalize that as mothers and we're constantly evaluating ourselves and other moms in terms of those societal standards. And so it's this constant battle of, am I a good enough mom? Am I doing it right? Are my kids demonstrating? Like, are my kids doing things that I would be proud of that make me look good as a mom? And women, we're used to doing that. Women are used to being hard on themselves, used, you know, this all the time. We're constantly thinking of, do I look good? Am I competent enough at work? Are my kids doing well? Are my relationships good? We, we do this across all contexts. I think it's true. One of the things you're saying, I think you're heading to the anxiety that a yes, lot of so the moms yeah. feel, right? Yep. Where it's like, if, if, I, if I believe that to parent correctly, one must do ABC, and then someone else yeah. is like, eh, ABC is not important. This is what's important. Then that almost is going to feel like an existential threat. Like, are you saying my whole like you know philosophy of parenting is bad, right? And I feel like that's where some of that competitiveness happens. But also, yeah. parenting sometimes women tend to be competitive. You know, the the the, the stereotype I think maybe like in the fifties and sixties was like you know men are competitive, women are nice. Women are competitive. We just have to be nice about it, right? That's, that's right. just the way women are. Um, and what, what tends to happen is when we compete with other people and we're competing based on our own efforts, it's not as scary, right? Because, you know, yeah. I, I can do better. I can do worse. I can make the choice to try harder or not. But when I am competing with someone else based on what my child is going to produce, then suddenly it's really scary because I don't have direct outcome. I don't have direct control of the outcome, right? Yeah. It's very un- unpredictable. Right. And what one person might think is like the perfect thing to do and the right thing to do might be the perfect right thing for their child, but right. it isn't necessarily the perfect right thing for the universe of children in the, in the world, right? It's just right. the best thing for your kid. And I feel like that's where a lot of this worry and a lot of this shaming and the sense of, but, but you can't do it that way. It comes from that deep-rooted anxiety of like, am I a good mom? Will my kids be okay? Which is only fear, right? Because parenting is, in many ways, the most important thing we'll ever sure. do. And when they put that baby in your arms, there is that feeling of, I have to get this right for this kid because yeah. I'm it, right? Yeah. I get where that comes from, but where it goes is a little dangerous. Right. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it is rooted in this anxiety that I'm not good enough that, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it as well as other people are because it is such an important job. We've been, we've been socialized to believe that parenting is the hardest, but the most rewarding job. And so that already just puts pressure on us to do it so well. Those kids are depending on us to be competent in this area. At least, you know, that's, that's kind of like how we're, we're taught. And so, yes, we have all this worry, this anxiety, this guilt that we're not doing it good enough. And those negative emotions 
that we have about ourselves then seep into those conversations with other moms. And that's, yes, we don't necessarily have control over our anxiety. We can't necessarily just change that, but we do have control over the way that we talk to other people and how that anxiety manifests in our interactions. So that's where my research really focuses on, okay, if I know that I am hypersensitive to other people's negative comments, if I know that I'm going to be on edge if somebody criticizes my parenting, I have to make the conscious effort. I have to be more mindful of the way that I respond to that criticism so that I'm not fueling these these wars, these really hurtful, hateful conversations. Like I have to do my part in kind of stepping back and trying not to take it personal so that I can have a calm conversation about it. And you had asked a really good question, you know, like what, what can we do about it is a lot of moms that I've had in my studies say they just avoid the contact. Like that's one that they manage it is to avoid it. But when we think about conflict that, that may be a little bit more extreme, like when we talk about conflict between racial groups that, you know, we see how divisive and extreme and serious that is. Avoidance is never the answer in those types of conflicts because that avoiding that only in, it increases our anxiety because we become more fearful of what those those other people are like about what that those interactions are going to be like. Um, we actually like build up more fear by avoiding, and we have to get curious, right, about people who are different. And that's one of yes. the things I teach in therapy, right? When I, even when I'm talking to kids is, well, did you get curious? When, when that boy said that mean thing to you, did you get curious about why? Because that undoes that, that social anxiety and that fear, right? That's the opposite of withdrawal is curiosity. It's not like presence necessarily. Yeah. Um, when I look online, because I find it interesting, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I treat parents and families. I am a parenting educator. And, you know, I recently started putting myself out there on social media. So for me, I've had an interesting journey, and that's why I'm a good observer of this. For a very long time, I was extremely anti-social media at all. I just was like sort of like a crunchy granola sense. The Wi-Fi signal will remain in my office. My office is in my basement, and the internet will remain there. There will be no social media in my house. I just had too many teenage patients who were doing things like sleeping with their phone under their pillow and like literally putting themselves into the, into the position that you would be in with a newborn baby. Like every time there's a notification on their like TikTok, they would wake up and like respond to it, which is like, I would never voluntarily do that. Right. So I was like, okay, there will be no internet in this house at all. And like, I had that as a, you know, as a philosophy, of course, then when I, you know, started going into publishing my book, I had to have an author platform. So I had to change that. Although I didn't change the rule for my kids. I'm still like, we, you know, don't interact on social media till we have the frontal lobe capacity to do so. I feel strongly about that. But, um, but so for me, I went like from no social media, absolutely. Like I probably had Facebook in like 2005 for five minutes. And then I was like, I don't like (laughs) it. I'm done. And Uh then I just went on full steam, Facebook, Instagram, everything, you know, to promote my book, to promote my podcast, all of that kind of stuff. And one time I was posting something about time management and what it's like to be a mompreneur. And I wrote something about the shortcuts I do in terms of like cooking and things like that. And I was mom shamed. There were people who were just like right away posting like, 
what do you mean? How could you feed that to your kids? How, like, you know, a, a mom's job is to like, is to nurture her family. How do you, like I was writing certain shortcuts that I, you know, that I use. I, I wrote something like, listen, I'm a clinical psychologist. I promise you nothing terrible is going to happen to your kids. If one day <laughs> you're like totally stressed out and like you serve chicken nuggets and bought French fries for dinner, it's better no. than being stressed out and making like organic chicken and rice and then yelling <laughs> at them. I'd rather serve yeah, them chicken yeah. nuggets. And boy, did I get mom shamed. And I was like, what is this experience, right? Like, what is going on here? So interesting. Wow. Like, I'm sharing a tip, a hack that I feel like busy moms can learn that, like, here's what sure. you should prioritize. If you're going to be yelling at your kids, you're probably better off serving them scrambled eggs and, like, dry That's cereal right. for dinner than yelling at them. And, That's right. and, like, boom, the mom shaming started. And not, I wasn't terribly hurt because, like I said, get curious, right? I got so curious about it. I said, this is interesting because it seemed like it was an emergency for the moms who, and not only did someone mom shame me, but she tagged like 10 other moms who are into nutrition so that they can also mom shame me, right, about this post. And, And that's when I came across your research and I wrote about it. And that blog got so many, like that blog post got so many clicks because I think a lot of moms are like, what is this? Like, why has parenting become weaponized, right? It's yeah. so interesting. I love that term. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's like, we're like, I got so curious. And I think curiosity is counter shaming because like, oh, yeah. that's so interesting yep. that you're saying that to me. I think it helped for me that I am a clinical psychologist. So when sure. I got mom shamed, I didn't say, oh my God, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm the worst mother ever. I went, right, right. okay, I know what I know. I'm so curious as to why this was an emergency for these women that I posted this, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what existential threat did it pose to them that I posted right. that I sometimes feed my kids chicken nuggets for dinner, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, right now I'm conscious of an anxiety and a desire to say, by the way, most of the time we have really healthy suppers in my house and usually it's like the baked chicken and rice and usually supper is the healthy food because like that little fear of mom shaming yes. right now is talking to me. I'm being like, but Robin, you usually serve like salmon and quinoa, like say that, <laughs> right? <You know? laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have that urge to defend yourself. And yeah. I think a lot of moms feel that way. You know, I mean, defend the choices that we're making and to, to demonstrate, well, even if I have made a mistake, let me tell you about all the successes that I've had. Or let me tell you about all the that I've done. And it's, it's that face of flawless motherhood. I need to make sure that I'm putting that out there so that if I do mess up or, you know, perceive to have messed up, that I can still protect myself. And, and preserve that really good mommy identity that I have. Because yeah, like we do, we have that little, for some it's bigger, some it's small, but that little anxiety in the back of our head saying, well, maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you haven't right. done it well enough today. Every day is a new day. I think D.W. Winnicott said that, and you know, and we know from like medicine, right? Anything is toxic to the excess, even being a perfect mother. Like that idea that somehow I have to compete because I have to do it perfectly is actually what's going to make you a worse mom. Like if, yeah. if, if it's about mommying and not about having a perfect Instagram page, it's going to make you a worse mom. That's right? right. Yeah. I mean, we got, we have to let go of that perfect mothering that those standards, because it looks different for every woman. It looks different for every family. There is no right. Like you said at the beginning, there is no right way to do it. We have to let go of that pressure, but also the comparing to other people because everybody's situation is different. And it's those comparisons that fuel that anxiety, because if you're constantly trying to live up to somebody else's standard, you're never going to, you're never going to fulfill that because your life is different. Your situation is different. And 
And so, yeah, let go of that pressure. Um, we need to be easier on ourselves. So we serve chicken nuggets. That's okay. So we let kids watch TV so that we could go to a, um, you know, cause we had a meeting that we needed right. to do, you know, like that's okay. We need to be a little bit, a little easier on ourselves in that regard. And that once we start reducing our own anxiety and we feel a little bit more confident in our mothering abilities, then I believe that that will help us in those interactions with other moms because we won't be so quick to defend ourselves. We won't feel that need to, you know, if somebody does say something hurtful, we might not even hurt because we feel okay about ourselves. We feel good about what we're doing. Exactly. So I know you've done a lot of research on helicopter parenting, and I'm curious about, can you explain what a helicopter parent is? And I'm wondering also if you think that a post-traumatic parent is more likely to become a helicopter parent. So helicopter parenting is these behaviors that, that parents use. That's, it's really with extreme control, over-involvement, over-investment. It's, it's parents really trying to facilitate their children's success. So they're doing all these things to make sure that their children don't encounter any type of um, adversity, difficult emotions. They want to make sure that their kids have the best opportunities to succeed, whether that's in their, you know, academic goals, their professional goals, even their personal relationships. But while that's really good intentioned at times, it tends to manifest in parents micromanaging their kids' lives, every aspect of their kids' lives, like over-investing in the tasks and the activities that their children are involved in. Like not just, well, my kids are doing well at something, but Helicopter parents often feel like, well, that means I'm doing well at something because okay. I've helped my kids get there by sometimes it's like I've actually done my kids' school project so that they get a good grade on it. So I've overinvested in their grade because now they have succeeded at this. I've, I've prevented them from failing and literally and figuratively speaking. And so then I've prevented myself from failing. So there's that attachment to their outcomes is my outcome. And in order to prevent their kids from, from failing, they have to be excessively involved. And it's developmentally inappropriate because most of the time kids can do these things on their own. These are not things that we're not talking about parents being involved, you know, with a toddler because the toddler can't fix their own dinner. <laughs> we're right. talking about parents being over-involved in like a grade schooler, a middle schooler, high schooler, and beyond doing things for them that they could developmentally do for themselves. And right, like, like doing the fifth grade on science project for your kids so that they get the A and they win the science fair when that's right. it's not your homework because presumably you did fifth grade already and presumably you've done your own science project. Yeah. Your kid is supposed to be doing that project, that's right. right? Yes. And we're not talking about um, that being a supportive parent and an involved parent, I'm not trying to demonize that. Like that is, those are good behaviors. We do need to be encouraging, supporting, um, and involved in our kids' lives. But helicopter parenting takes it to an excessive level. That right. Just- I can tell you a really funny story about that. <laughs> my, my, one of my sons was really into science and science, um, you know, a lot of science stuff. And he, had, he was doing a science project and it involved using um, alcohol to create a battery. 
So I was pregnant at the time and I went into like, I think it was like a big spirits unlimited store. And I needed to buy like two gigantic jugs of really cheap vodka because he needed yeah. to make this battery using alcohol. And so, and, I, and my son was with me. This was like pre, way pre-corona days. We're talking going back like five years. And he was uh-huh. with me and I, and the lady, and I'm standing there with these two gigantic jugs of vodka. And the lady goes to me, you know, ma'am, I don't know that you should be drinking this right now. So I was like, oh, wow. that's okay. It's for him. I point to my nine-year-old son. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's going to call the cops. Like, it just came oh, out so bad, gosh. right? Because, yeah. of course, I want to invest in a success. Of course, I'm going to buy him the vodka. And I'm going to get him the well, poster sure. board. And I'm going to, like, take him to the library to, like, find books and resources about his yes. things. But I'm not going to be sitting there lettering the sign. If, if the sign has to, and if it's a little unevenly lettered because he's nine and, That's you know, right. not that That's artistic. Right. Let it be not even unevenly lettered, but of course I'll buy him the stuff. Of course I'll, you know, help him out. Of course, if he gets stuck yes. and like something's not connecting, I'll try to help him troubleshoot it. That's being an invested parent. But if I was going to do the sign for him, or if yeah. I was going to do the entire project for him, do the write-up, do all the little flashcards that had to be like yeah. put on the poster board, that would be helicopter parenting as opposed yeah. to involved parenting. Right. And that's a really good example because the driving your son to the store, purchasing the products for him so that he can complete the project, those are not things he can do on his own. He's nine or, you know, he doesn't have a driver's license. So you have to do those things. But when, after all of that is finished and he has all the supplies to complete the project and all of the tools from school to complete the project, then he goes off on his own and finishes it. And you kind of take a step back and you allow him to maybe even struggle with some things and go research something, ask questions of his teacher, ask questions of you so that he can complete it, allow him to have a little bit of that autonomy and even perhaps not do it perfectly so that maybe right. he learn, okay, well, next time, here's what I'm going to do differently and be able right. to experience that personal growth. But the helicopter parenting behaviors really stifles children's independence. So they don't learn those adaptive skills to be able to cope with difficulty in the future, you know, or, or change their behavior so they can succeed at something later on. And then that be, they become very reliant on their parents for um, nearly everything. I mean, even just emotion regulation, you know, parents right. feel like they have to make sure my kids are always happy, that they don't experience right. sadness or, un, you know, that they're not uncomfortable with something. And all of those emotions are actually really healthy for kids to feel because that allows them to gain the skills. I don't need to tell you this, gain skills so that they can cope and manage difficult experiences later in life. I mean, that's, that's how they can become functioning adults. Right. I mean, and people can take this to an extreme. I remember when I was an adjunct instructor in a college and I was teaching, I believe it was actually a master's program. I was teaching like intro to research design or intro to statistics, something like that. Um, It may have been a BA program, may have been a master's program, I don't remember, but one of the students was having trouble managing her workload and her mother called me. And I said, like, you're in college now, so the time for your mom to call me is, you know, when you were in fourth grade. Like, this is not the time. You're having a hard time. You can take a semester off. You can talk to the guidance department of the college. Like, you have many options as a a college student. You have many options. But one of the options, it was like a community college program. So it wasn't like, you know, kids who were living away from home. It was a little bit more of a supportive environment. But you're in college now. If you're in college now, your mom is not calling me. 
Right. You need to figure your time management out. Now, you can come That's to right. yourself and say, Dr. Kozlowitz, I'm having a hard time managing all my requirements or statistics is hard for me. I've never been good at math. Can you help me? Can you point me to like resources that will help me? You know, you can do that, but your mom can't sure. be calling me. Right. And the mom was startled when I told her that this is just really? not appropriate. Yeah. In all my years, I've only had maybe one or two parents contact me about their kids' grades, but it's it's that advocacy on the children's behalf, then the, the, ch- the child never learns how to advocate for themselves. If, well, mom will call, mom will do it, dad will do it, then I'm, I'm not going to learn how to have those difficult conversations. I became interested in this because my mom was a helicopter parent, and she still is. You know, I'm almost 40, and she still continues to helicopter parent me and my, my younger siblings. And I was very interested in what are the effects of this kind of parenting? Like what, basically, what's it going to do to me as I grow up and I try to be an independent adult? How has that affected my ability to have personal professional success? So, and, and I watched her be, you know, excessively controlling and over-invested in my, my siblings' lives as I left the house, went to college and, and moved away from home. And so that's how I became really interested in it because I thought, what is it about this kind of parenting that, and what are the long-term effects of it? So is it just something right. that makes kids feel really good and secure about themselves when they're living at home? But, and that doesn't seem to be the case, but that's what I was curious about. You know, is this going to be a detrimental to kids long-term? It's so interesting that you brought that up because one of the things I'm constantly trying to get people to understand is this idea that there's no such thing as context-free knowledge in the world, right? There's a question, but there's a questioner, right? Like when I was at the beginning of grad school in the late 90s, um, there were a lot of dissertations at that point on the effects of divorce on kids. And the reason for that was the kids of divorce, right? Divorce started really becoming popular (laughs) in the 80s. We're growing up and going to grad school and wanted to study this, right? So there's no such thing as like knowledge, like, okay, this is the best way to parent. If if there's a study about parenting, there's a reason why that person looked into that topic and wrote that study and was interested in that question. There's a reason I, when I taught all my parenting classes, and I kept hearing people ask a variation on the theme of, I didn't have a normal childhood, how can I give my children one, that I heard and I said, oh, this is a thing. There's something called post-traumatic parenting. Like, I noticed the cluster because my eyes were open to it because I am a post-traumatic parent. I've had that question myself. I I grew up with a very chronically ill father who died when I was a kid. So I grew up in a home, you know, where, where there was a lot of illness and then eventually dealt with the death of a parent. So that question was my question, right? I don't know how to parent kids with like a young dad and a young mom who aren't like dealing with ambulances every day. What's normal? What do you, how do you parent? when you aren't dealing with a crisis in your family every day. And so then when people in my parenting class, because I would be giving a parenting class about shy children or a parenting class about explosive children or whatever, you know, whatever class I'd be giving. And somehow a mom would bring up this question like, but I was so shy. How am I going to raise confident kids? But I was bullied, but I was raised in poverty, but I was raised in a different country, you know, whatever their, whatever their fear was. And I I said, Oh, we are something called post-traumatic parents. How did I know that? I only knew that because I lived it and I 
I paid attention to the question. Had I not lived it, I might not have noticed. It just would have been, oh, that question came up. I might not have noticed it as a cluster. And as like, oh, wow, this is a question that keeps coming up. It's a thing. I need to investigate it. Like you investigated helicopter parenting because you experienced it. I feel like so many times post-traumatic parents will read a research study, you know, like something will come out on Instagram and it'll be something like kids who had dads who played sports with them are five times better at math than kids who have dads who don't do that. And then it becomes this emergency, right? Like I need to get, I had a mom say to me, like, I need to get my husband to play sports with my son because I saw this study and this. And I said, well, what what is my, the only thing my husband does with my son is they like tinker with an old car together. My husband like is really into like engines and mechanics and my son passes him tools and they chat, but he'll never play sports with him. And I'm, and and I say, okay, but the study says, like, I read the study. I I saw this research and it's like, well, yeah, but that person didn't research dads who, you know, teach their kids mechanics and whether those kids go on to become engineers, right? Like that wasn't the question the researcher had, right? (laughs) You know, or like, oh, if I don't play puzzles with my kid on the floor, then they won't grow up with as much spatial intelligence. But I hate puzzles. (laughs) But okay, but you do other things with your kid, right? right? And that's just as good. It's not like research is this thing that gives us information about the objective truth of the universe. Right. It's just an answer to the question that researcher had. Yes, that's correct. And what we find in one study does not necessarily mean it will apply to every person that engages in whatever the topic was. But if you have similar um, backgrounds, demographics as the participants in the study, then the outcomes are very likely for you because you are similar to the people that we we studied. And so, yeah, there is no one best. And there's a whole host of things that parents are doing that you could come up with a, a list of things that are effective parenting behaviors. But it is, yeah, it is contextual. And and some of those things on the most effective parenting behaviors are what I might call even like luxury behaviors because not all parents have the time, the resources to devote on um, being the most effective communicator. You know, that's just the reality. Like some of their, their living situations don't allow communication to be the top priority for them. And you have to be aware of that. Like, you know, sometimes just safety and survival are number one and then is secondary. But once you get over those basic skills, then communication is really important because that does kind of fuel a lot of the child outcomes, family outcomes, um, just by changing a few things about the way that you interact with your, your partner or your, or your kids. And so there's a lot of things. Yeah. Just because one study said this one thing that doesn't necessarily make you a bad parent because you didn't do it or you haven't done it. Right. And we can constantly adapt as parents. And that's one thing that makes us effective is being able to adapt, not being so set in what I did a year ago or what my parents did. Being able to adapt and compensate for something that might have been really negative in our childhood, if we can be more mindful and conscious of that, like what was that thing that made me really feel hurt? or pain? How can I do something different in my family? And that compensation or just being conscious of the way that I communicate with my kids really can set parents up for success. Because if you're thinking about it, you're probably going to do a better job. You're probably going to be more effective just because you've put effort into it. It's, It's more dangerous when we're just sort of 
unconsciously modeling those negative behaviors and we're not thinking through those choices that we're that we're that we're making or the ways that we're talking in our families um you know it's it's a lot easier just well my mom always talked to me that way that's just the way that I'm going to talk right and so that's easy <laughs> but if and you're talking about with your post-traumatic parents I think it's just so fascinating because if we don't want to repeat those negative experiences we, it does require a little bit of effort. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to be doing or reading research on it. It just means that you have to be a little bit more mindful of the ways that, that you're interacting. For me, the, the, the research gives me a lot of, it informs my choices so that, you know, I'm really interested in, well, if I talk this way or I behave this way, that I will get these outcomes. That's what's really, it provides maybe a little bit of security for me. You know, like right. we talking about that anxiety that we have. Well, what are the ways that I can sort of make myself feel more confident as a mother, as a parent? Well, for me, it's it, the research helps me do that because I can sort of tailor the way that I communicate and, and relate to my children based on what I know has been effective through empirical research. So right. that, I mean, it helps to know, right? Knowledge and getting curious definitely helps us. Yep. Is yeah. there like a recovery path for a helicopter parent? Like if somebody <laughs> is a helicopter parent, is there like, I don't know, helicopter parenting anonymous? Like can they like learn <laughs> other, other skills? That's a really good question. So far, we haven't studied that, you know, ways to un- unhelicopter. And right now, because helicopter parenting is really like a, a, a baby boomer type of parenting, what's happening is their kids are just growing up. And so they're either sort of phasing out of that because it's not physically possible to hover that much over your adult children right? or not, or their children end up being so dependent on them that they just stay home, even right. on college, even into their um, young adult lives. They're just remaining home so they can continue to helicopter. So that's kind of like where, where we are right now. I mean, certainly if you, if you identified as a helicopter parent, you can change that. You have the capacity to change. Right. It wouldn't be easy because you'd be, you know, really those behaviors would be so enmeshed in your family lives, but you certainly can take a step back. Just like you can take a step back from those pressures of, of being a mom. You can choose not to stress yourself out to try to fulfill those. Same thing with helicopter parents. We could choose not to be so intrusive, not to be so controlling, but that's not, that's not easy. It definitely takes a lot of effort. And, and I think sometimes until something negative happens, we don't see the value of the change. Almost Right. Um, it's true. We have to have our eyes open by something going wrong because otherwise we're yeah. just going to stay in our comfort zone. I almost yeah. feel like Angela Duckworth's research on grit is like in response yeah, to helicopter yeah. parenting, right? Like, let yep. the kid fail, right? That's it. That's it. You know, yeah, because, okay, I mean, so you failed. Big deal. Like, step up and do it again. Try again. Fail better next time. Like, that's all it is. Yeah. But as a parent, we have to be okay with that failure, too. Like, we have to, and, and we have to separate ourselves from our kid's failure. So we have to find a way to sort of detach a little bit, not, not like leave them out on an island by themselves, but detach in a sense that if they don't perform well, that's okay for both them and us. And actually even go to another step, like it doesn't even reflect who I am as a person or a a parent 
that's their outcome. That's the, based on the effort that they did or did not put in. That's not indicative of the way that I parent or the choices that I would make for my life. But yeah, letting kids fail. I, I've seen many articles about that, that we don't need to be preventing failure. Like that's right. those learning opportunities. It's really healthy not to have everything go our way. What, one thing that I'm working on right now is how that, that helicopter parenting as a, as a child influences the way that we relate to our romantic partners. That if everything went our way as a child, well, what does that do? How does that influence how we talk to our, our partners? Because we just assume that those romantic relationships will just be rosy, easy. We won't have to invest too much in it. That like our partners will take care of that because our parents always took care of that. And, and that's also not a real, that's not a good place to be because that means that we're not contributing to those relationships. And, and right. so we're not uncomfortable. We don't know how to let ourselves yeah. be uncomfortable to do the that's work right. of the relationship. That's right. Yeah. And, and that, that discomfort, those failures are really beneficial. My parents said this to me all the time, like failure gives you character. Well, that phrase, it, it, <laughs> substance there, because it, it does, it actually allows you to build those, those coping strategies, those skills for your later relationships and your, um, your life later. Right. And I think you and I, as researchers and moms, we know that any one data point is meaningless, right? Like, so if your yes. kid fails, I don't know, you know, a math test in ninth grade, okay, fine. So they failed. And then what have we learned from this experience? And are you right. going to next time not like go to the beach the day before the test, but you're right. actually going to study yeah. or whatever, <laughs> like fail, learn your lesson, move mm-hmm. on from there. You're the one who's going to talk to the teacher about it. You're going to figure out a way to fix your grade. That's and right. you know, yeah, sometimes kids don't understand long-term implications of certain things. But like if your kid doesn't get into like, I don't know, Harvard, and instead they get into a state college that's a good college, that might be where they find their passion and that might be where they end up going on to having a fantastic life. You can't control outcomes. You don't want an unmotivated Harvard student, right? You want a kid who's (laughs) successful in life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, getting them to Harvard, well, then what? Like, right. how will they sustain that? How, the, even beyond college, like they have to have those tools to be able to work through difficulty. Difficulty will happen, and it's it's how you get through it. Not not just preventing or up to that point. You need to be able to work through that difficulty and get to the outcome on the other side. And and what's happening, I think, is parents are setting their kids up for that successful outcome, whatever it is in that moment not realizing they don't have the tools to actually carry it out. They, you got them there, but they don't know how to actually, they got the job because you helped them with their interview. Maybe you even called their employer and said, right. they're a really good candidate. Okay, they got the job, but now what happens when they show up for the first day? Right, can they do the work? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and what's really difficult is we don't want our kids to be unhappy. We, you know, we, we want our kids to have a good life. And I think that it kind of speaks to your post-traumatic parenting. Like they're trying to do the right thing so that their kids can have a better life than, than they do. And I think sometimes we as parents go overboard because we're not sure what is that moderate, what is that good space to be in so that our kids can grow up to be functioning independent adults. It's very true. And it's very, you know, it's interesting 
that the way you're saying it in terms of, uh, again, I'm thinking of that anxiety about it having to be perfect and that, that need. I can really see how a parent, even when she's aware that failure is important and it builds character yeah. and, you know, whatever, that like in the moment that the child might fail, that desire to swoop in and, you know, correct yeah. it, you know, like it's, it's going to yeah, be right. hard. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's and hard to undo because if you've already been engaging in those like hyper controlling, hyper involved behaviors, it's going to be really hard to undo that. And especially in the moment, you know, like they come home from school and they had a really awful day because they failed a test or their friends were mean to them. It's really difficult to not get involved in that because you want them to feel comfortable. You want them to be happier. but what I, you know, I'm always sort of arguing is that in that moment, you're actually going to do them more service by not getting involved. Like let them figure out, okay, I had this fight with my friend. You can certainly be there as a sounding board. If they ask for your advice, absolutely give it. But it's not your job to call the other person's parent and say, well, what happened? And I think your daughter should apologize to my daughter. And she's really upset and, and, you know, she's never going to play with your daughter again. You know, that's, that is not going to be, that's not going to do a service to them. Your child needs to figure out the next day at school, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? And a lot of it is trial and error. That's how they're going to learn what's socially acceptable. Um, what my friends expect of me, you know, it's, it's just living through those moments and right. You can troubleshoot with the kid and say, all right, so your friend was mean to you. Did you give her feedback? Did you get curious, right? You can have that conversation. You for sure validate, oh, that that sounds like that's terrible. That must have hurt you really badly, right? (laughs) Right. All those hugs and all that stuff. And then, you know, troubleshooting. But when the kid's like, can you call his mother and tell him? That's where it's like, well, I think you can tell him tomorrow yourself. And then you can keep me posted on how it went. You can go to the teacher and you can advocate for yourself. That's you right. can say to the teacher, you know, I don't understand how this assignment works. You can do those things. I can help you think of the best way to phrase it or what to ask or how to put it. But yep. ultimately, I want you to be the one to call the teacher or to, you know, to, to ask the teacher tomorrow to call your friend and ask for an explanation or get curious or ask for feedback, whatever happened. Right. right. I want you to do that because if I do that for you, what have you learned? Exactly. And how and what will happen the next time if it happens at school and I'm not right there? Right. You have to be able to work through that on your own. Right. I'm very into that thing. Even with um, anti-bullying curricula in schools, I always say the goal is not to train the teachers to be better monitors of the kids. The goal yeah. is to teach the kids at a time that a teacher is not there. How do you respond yeah. when someone makes that type of comment to you or when you see someone else being bullied? Because it will always happen when the teachers aren't there because kids are smart and because Things happen in bathrooms, things happen and you know, in like, you know, the last seat on the bus, things aren't going to happen in middle of math class, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, like as the teacher's sitting there, right? That's not right. when the bullying is going to happen. The kid has to learn what I say is how to play the game because it's a game. It starts as a game. So learn to yeah. play because I can't yeah. play for you. I played. Yeah. I did this. I was a sixth grade girl. I know what that's like. Now you have to learn how to be a sixth grade girl. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's really good. That's really smart because it, it is, it's, it's equipping the kids with the tools. It, it can't be on the adult. I mean, it can't all be on the adults because you're right. The kids are going to have their own private interactions and they need to work through that because those private interactions are going to continue into their workplaces. They're 
going to have colleagues that are nasty to work with and they have to earn trial and error that as children, as adolescents, so that they can take those tools and those skills. And every time mom or dad swoops in and fixes it and makes them, them just feel better about it is actually taking away an opportunity for them to gain that new skill. And right. And it's all about what have we learned? Like now we learned a skill, right? We don't want to rob them. Like you're saying, we can't, we're, we're stealing from them. If we don't give them, this was a painful right. experience. And now did you learn something new? Did you learn a skill from it? Now that you know that skill, how did it go? Can you apply it in another context? Because if I yes. swoop in, you haven't learned anything other than that. My mommy is always going to be there to swoop yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like, okay, I can be there to validate and support and cheerlead from the sidelines and like maybe even from behind the scenes inform a teacher. Like, for example, I, you know, was working once with, it wasn't a, it wasn't a a child of mine. It was a patient of mine. I was working with a child with a lot of social anxiety and she needed to speak to her teacher about something. And I coached her for a long time about how to say it to her teacher and how to ask her teacher. And, you know, we really, you know, went through this entire troubleshooting process and then, unbeknownst to the kid, I called the teacher and I said, look, she's going to be coming over to you tomorrow, and she's a very socially anxious person to make a request. I'm not going to tell you what the request is. I just want you to be responsive and, like, be available to hear her. Now, the kid didn't yeah. know that I scaffolded it that way, right, because she really is very impaired in terms of, she was at that point impaired in terms of her social anxiety, but I still didn't do it for her. I didn't call the teacher for her because uh-huh. that would be disempowering. Right. She ultimately went the next day and said to the teacher, can I talk to you? And the teacher, knowing that I had told her, you know, she's going to be coming to you, said, oh, certainly. Why don't we do it during the lunch break? And then the teacher really heard her out because she was primed to listen. But it was the kid's job to ask. That's right. I think that's that's a really good example. And in that moment, it would be really easy to do it for her because you already know she's suffering from anxiety. So like you oh, if I do it for you, I can reduce your anxiety. Well, actually the reverse would happen because if something in the future was difficult or uncomfortable, her anxiety is going to increase because she never learned how to manage that. And I think that's like a lot of, a lot of helicopter parents think I'm preserving my kid's mental health by being in. I'm actually making them more comfortable, making them more secure because I'm removing all those obstacles. I'm making things so easy for them. Actually, what we see is that you've, you increase their anxiety, their depression, their dependency on you and others, because they've never felt, they've never been in a situation that was uncomfortable, difficult. So, and they're going to encounter lots and that's only increased their anxiety. So it's a really good example. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.